0: I wanted to mention our uh, order of worship real quick before we get started because I get questions periodically. Why, why do you have this particular order of worshiping? It's not because we think it's cool. It's not because we think it's trendy or traditional. It's actually the biblical way that you approach God. First of all, you notice there's five steps. The first step is God calls us. We don't have an invocation. We're not having God come down to us. Rather, God has always waited Even back from the garden, we present ourselves before him. And then God cleanses us as we confess our sins before him. We're consecrated, that is, set apart. We're renewed according to his word. And so this is where the word is preached. This is where the word is read. This is where we recite the creed together. And then God communes with us. He comes and serves us a meal. And having been refreshed at this meal, we are commissioned to go out for the life of the world. What do lowness and water have to do with each other? We're continuing here in the season of Eastertide in Acts chapter 2. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon us this morning. We pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit you would open our eyes and our hearts to truth, that we might understand it and that we might do it in our time and place. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In the 2009 film, Get Low, Robert Duvall plays hermit Felix Bush who plans out his funeral party, but the party will occur while he is still alive As the story progresses, Felix reveals a terrible sin and tragedy that he is finally having to come to terms with as he faces his own death He has to get low the crowd that heard Peter preach on Pentecost had their own sins and tragedies that they had to come to terms with, particularly their participation in the death of their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the book of Acts, we see it's not just about getting low, but one has to get low and get wet. Get low and get wet. Good. and open up your Bibles. Acts chapter 2. We're gonna begin here with this sort of prologue that we see in verse 14 once again. And in verse 14 it says, but Peter standing with the 11 lifted up his voice and addressed them. It's the day of Pentecost. The 120 were in the upper room and the spirit was poured out in tongues of fire. And they went out and preached the gospel and the languages of all these pilgrims who've come from, to Jerusalem from all around the world. Judas is gone. He's killed himself, and Matthias has been added in his place. And so Peter stands up with the other 11. And then we see in verse 12, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? And you may remember last week, Peter began to preach to the crowd at Pentecost. And so we continue here in verse 36. Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Kid, do you, kids, do you see those titles there? Lord and Christ. Lord and Christ. The words in Greek are Kurion and Christon. God has made Jesus both Kurion and Christon, Lord and Christ, the one whom you killed, but who rose from the dead and Now let's take a look back really quick here because there's some things in context here in Acts chapter two that Peter said. If you look at verse 33, Peter said this, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus surely rose from the dead, says Peter, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father and he poured out his Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God. The Spirit's poured out, and that's the phenomenon that you're seeing before your very eyes. Going on to verse 34 and 35, Peter continues, for David did not ascend into heaven. David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord has said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David Moved upon by the Holy Spirit of God, recorded these words. The Lord said to my Lord, Peter said it wasn't David who ascended into heaven. Whatever David thought about what he was writing, I have no idea, but he was writing down prophecy concerning the coming of this Jesus, this Jesus who will ascend to the right hand of the Father. This Jesus to whom all the nations will give their obedience one way or the other, they will be made into his footstool. Peter says this, and back to verse 36 here. Now we see Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom he crucified. His three names or titles encompass who he is. Let's work backwards through this. First, Jesus. Now we look at this and we think, okay, cool, Jesus Christ, you know, right? Sometimes it's used in very unflattering ways in our culture, but if you were there in the first century and you were a pilgrim who had your mind set on spiritual things in Jerusalem, this would have been very significant to you. Now, the name here is Yeshua or Yehoshua. It means Joshua, Joshua. In the first century, it was a reasonably common name. People named their kids after Joshua, but if you were a Jew, you didn't just simply pick out names because they sounded cool. They were connected in with events of God. They were connected in with the mighty acts of God through the people of God. And when one was named Joshua, there was some connection in with the original Joshua. Who was he? Joshua, the greater Moses. Joshua, the one who led the people of God into the promised land in conquest. Joshua, this Joshua whom you crucified, the Jewish man come in time to fulfill the Joshua conquest motif, the greater Moses. Now let's work backwards through these titles. The Christ, the Christon, the anointed one. Who is this? The promised Messiah who will set his people free. Teach them God's word and lead them into the Jubilee. That theme comes up over again in Jesus' teaching. When Jesus begins his ministry, he announces himself as the one who will bring the year of jubilee. And what is that? Well, you had sevens in the Old Testament. Every seventh year, you were supposed to let your fields grow wild. Every seventh year, you were to free your indentured servants. But after seven sevens in the 50th year, in the 50th year, keep that in mind, in the year after the 7-7, seven, seven, it was a super-duper Sabbath year. It was a year of jubilee. And what happened in that year? Or at least what was supposed to happen? You were supposed to forgive all the debts. You were supposed to set all the prisoners free. Slaves were to go free. Land that had been mortgaged away because of debts was given back to its original owners. The slaves were set free, debts were forgiven, and it was never done in Israel as far as the historic record shows. But when Messiah comes, he's bringing with him the year of Jubilee. Now why do I say this and bring in this idea of the Jubilee? Because it was heavily embedded in the idea of the coming of the Christos. When Messiah comes... He's bringing the ultimate jubilee. And the jubilee took place on the 50th year. And where are we at today in our story? It's Pentecost, the 50th day after the Passover. It's the feast of 50s. It is the feast of first fruits. And furthermore, what does Peter say? Him both Lord, Lord and Christ, Lord. This is a title that would have been clearly understood in the first century. By the first century, Jews had taken the name of Yahweh, his holy name that he gives to his people. They felt funny about it. They didn't feel it was reverential, and so they replaced it with the title Adonai, meaning Lord. When it's translated into Greek, it becomes kurios, and that's what Jesus is referred to here by Peter. The Lord, he's more than a man. He's the second person of the triune God who as God created the world, delivered the law, and will come again on the final day of judgment. And Peter says this to the crowd, the wonderful promised Savior came and you crucified him. You crucified him. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now, the Spirit has been poured out on Pentecost, not just on the 120 in the upper room, but upon the crowd. It is always the Spirit of God that brings faith. It is always the Spirit of God that opens eyes and opens hearts on dead people to see the truth, and the Spirit is doing that here on Pentecost, and they were pierced to the heart. It is the powerful, targeted work of the Spirit. Now, think about that. They're pierced to the heart, What kind of instrument would have been used? They're pierced to the heart. The idea would have been some sort of knife or sword. The sword of the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit, has pierced hearts. And it's brought about painful understanding. Eyes have been opened to what they have done as the people of God to their Messiah The word is preached and the hearers ask Brothers, what shall we do? This sounds so unlike what we do in modern evangelicalism The word is preached And the people respond to the word by the power of the spirit What shall we do? Notice there's no altar calls No ever declining appeals If any of you grew up in a church that had altar calls You know how it went, right? If you want to get saved, come on down up here front. We're going to pray over you. Nobody comes, right? If you got sin in your life you need prayed for, come on down front. Nobody comes. If anybody needs anything, come on down here up front. There's no declining appeals or altar calls here. When the word is preached, the power of the spirit works and people are cut to the quick by the sword of the spirit. Going on to verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Brothers, what shall we do, cries out the crowd. And Peter responds, No for spiritual laws. No prayers for salvation. By the way, did you know that, kids? Did you know there's no place in the New Testament where anybody ever prays for salvation? Prayer for salvation. Salvation and faith are a response to God's word coming to a person. So there's no spiritual law, for spiritual laws. There's no prayer of salvation. What does Peter say to answer this question? He says in the Greek here, metanaeo, that's the word, The verb for repent. Metanaeo, it's a second person plural imperative. It's a plural command. Command, you do this. And then baptizo, baptizo. It's a third person singular imperative passive. It's a command to submit to something. What is Peter saying in response to the crowd's question? You all must repent and be baptized You all must have a change of mind and turn and be baptized. You all must repent and be baptized and note the tight interconnection of repentance and act of faith and submitting to be baptized, also an act of faith. In the name of Jesus, I believe that's shorthand for what Jesus already commanded in the Great Commission. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, In the name of Jesus, why? Because he's the king who provides the salvation. He's paid the price for forgiveness of sins and reception of the Holy Spirit. And notice here that the crowd doesn't begin to speak in tongues. If this was a Holy Spirit revival that you saw on TV, right? The preacher would get up and start speaking in tongues and then a couple people out in the congregation would and then everybody's dancing in the pews and speaking in tongues but it doesn't happen in the Bible like that. They speak in tongues for a very specific reason. In specific languages, they preach the gospel and demonstrate that Babel has come to an end and that now people all over the world in the spirit of God speak one language. They speak the language of the gospel. Note the crowd doesn't speak in tongues. The sign has done its work. Verse 39. Peter continues, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It's God's work, not man's work. God calls whom he will, and he calls indiscriminately to us. He calls in ways that are seemingly overly generous. He calls masses of people, but he does the calling he does the saving the promise here forgiveness of sin and the gift of reception of the holy spirit is for you and your children we've forgotten that principle in modern america we don't know what to do with our kids they're like ghosts we send them off to children's church we don't disciple them. We think, well, they're smaller, they're lesser, they're less rational. We don't know what to do with them. They're in a different category. Believers here, unbelievers over here, kids of Christians, what to do. But the Word of God tells us tells us clearly that forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit is for you and your children. In Isaiah 44 and verse 3, concerning the promises of the coming of Messiah and the kingdom, I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. God loves you, parents. God loves you in Christ. And he loves your children. He loves your children. Can I hear an amen to that? God loves working through families. Why? He made the family? It's not like he... Had this thing happen and it sort of just came together through evolutionary processes, and then God said, Hey, that's all right, I like that. God made the family. And God likes working through the family. God likes building dynasties and kingdoms through the family. God loves pouring out his mercy and grace upon a thousand generations. Believe God and raise your children accordingly. Raise them as Christians, not as non-Christians. Disciple them as insiders, not outsiders. But notice here as well, God is extending this wonderful promise to those who are far off as well. He's moving beyond Jerusalem. He's going to be moving beyond Israel. He's going to those who are far off, to Samaritans. He's going to the Syrians. He's going to the Romans. He's going to the Persians. He's going to the Africans. He's going to the Chinese. God's saving the world through the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I hear an amen to that? Verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So how did the early church apply this? Well, they lived in the world, but they didn't conform to it. They were not Amish separatists, but were radical agents of transformation in the midst of a crooked generation. Friends, you live in the midst of a crooked generation. Don't get swallowed up by it. Don't let your conscience be the guide, as Jiminy Cricket says, but test everything. Test everything and conform everything to the Word of God. We live in a confused time where one expert says one thing, and the next minute on CNN, another expert comes on and says the exact opposite. You want to set yourself on a firm foundation. The Word of God is that firm foundation. This is a weird time and it has a silver lining for you because things are brought out in full relief. We live in a very crooked place and a very crooked time. It's a good time to look around, look at your family, look at your priorities, look to your spiritual walk and drive out the crookedness. Kids, drive out the crookedness and drink deeply from what is good. A lot less TikTok and a lot more Bible Let's go on to verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. God likes to build up stuff from nothing. God likes to take nothing and make something glorious of it. And why does he do that? Well, if we did it, if we had our hand in it some way, if we could somehow take responsibility or glory from that, we would say, look what we did but God likes to take the impossible and make it possible. God gets all the glory for himself. The 12 fell apart at the cross but were reconstituted at the resurrection. This little group of 120 in an upper room and then the spirit came in fire and wind and then there were 3,000 men converted. These men were likely pilgrims who brought their families with them so in one fell swoop there may have been five to 10,000 people converted in one day. There's 150 of us at King's Cross. What might God do if he decided to pour out his spirit? If God might give us fire and wind for the conversion of South Austin? What's God doing with the church in Austin these days? What's God doing with King's Cross? But I want to say this, brethren, if we're faithful, then I know for sure it's going to be good. In late February and early March 1937, Two major storms rolled through Southern California so that massive amounts of water and debris flowed down from the mountains into the Los Angeles basin in what was known as the Los Angeles flood. In this great reckoning, thousands of homes were destroyed, bridges and railroads were washed out, and the mail had to be brought in by the Coast Guard. 115 people also died. Los Angeles got low and got wet. The day of Pentecost was a day of reckoning for thousands of Jews. Their whole view of the scriptures and how they participated in the crucifixion of Jesus was washed away in a storm of fire, spirit, and water that left them cleansed and purified. This morning we've seen in the book of Acts that Israel and us need to get low and get wet. Sola Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and grace to us. We thank you, but by the power of the Spirit, you bring us low. And by the power of the Spirit, through baptism, we get wet and we get saved. We ask your blessing upon us that you would renew us once again to be reminded of our high position as your sons and daughters in the kingdom by the uniting work of Jesus Christ. But also to be reminded to get low, for it's all by grace. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.